Our guest today traveled for 34 years as a foreign correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. David Lamb's work took him to over 120 countries. His reporting has earned eight nominations for the Pulitzer Prize. David Lamb covered war in the Persian Gulf, the Iranian Revolution, the fall of Idi Amin, Israel's invasions of Lebanon, and the massacres in Rwanda, among diverse assignments. This correspondent considers two of Mr. Lamb's books, The Arabs, Journeys Beyond the Mirage, and The Africans, Encounters from the Sudan to the Cape, essential to understanding what is going on in both the Middle East and Africa. David Lamb also covered the Vietnam War, including an assignment to report on the fall of Saigon in 1975. He went back to Hanoi 20 years later to open the first peacetime bureau for the LA Times, the first former war correspondent to do so. His experience in the Vietnams of war and peace led him to chronicle the changes in the country in his most recent book, Vietnam Now, A Reporter Returns, which came out in 2002. David Lamb revisited Vietnam last year, an update which resulted in an article for the March 2008 Smithsonian Magazine titled Revolutionary Road. It details government's efforts to turn Vietnam's once notorious Ho Chi Minh Trail into a paved road linking north and south. Courtesy of the good people at Smithsonian, the author joins us now to talk about these changes in Vietnam after a third of a century. We're very pleased to be able to say, David Lamb, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you, Doug. Nice to be with you. Can we start out with a look back at 1975? You were in Saigon mapping out the advance of, uh, of North Vietnamese divisions, and many people were fearing a bloodbath would ensue. Uh, and We were told that's why the war had to continue, but it just didn't happen that way. It, it didn't at all, and the CIA, I recall, had predicted that 100,000 people would die in a bloodbath when the North came in. And it, Saigon fell very quietly with not a great deal of fighting. There was some fighting on the outskirts of, of town. Uh, but the North Vietnamese soldiers that came in, to the, to the shock of most people, at least those of us in the West, were disciplined, uh, well-behaved, uh, and um, did not come in uh, with, with uh, vengeance and blood in their mind. And, and, and how soon before the end did you get out? Uh, I got out about actually four days before the end. The Los Angeles Times had uh, four reporters in Saigon uh, the last month, and the editor ordered three of us out because the logistics of getting people out were so tough. So one, one of the the bureau chief went out on the evacuation helicopters, and I, along with the other two, got out uh, three or four days before the fall of Saigon. Well, in the Smithsonian article, you note that the transformation of the Ho Chi Minh Trail to a highway struck you as kind of an apt metaphor for the country's own journey from war to peace. It really does, and Americans particularly are so astounded to when they hear how well Vietnam is doing, the, that this is a country completely transformed, uh, that it's got the... Uh, third highest growth rate in Asia after India and China, that a whole middle class has been born, uh, that the, the country is absolutely booming. And, and what surprises many Americans the most is when I tell them that there is probably, this, this is not an exaggeration, there is probably not another country in the world where an American gets a more heartfelt and sincere welcome and embrace. And that obviously defies the legacy of the history, the tragic history between the two countries. Uh, but it's absolutely true. And uh, one, what, people say why, fair question. One of the reasons is 
Ho Chi Minh constantly said it was the American government, not the uh, American people that are your enemy. Uh, beyond that, I, the Vietnamese are very pragmatic people, and for them to see Americans back in the streets as tourists, as businessmen, uh, some of them going to school or, or teaching uh, uh, or working with non-governmental organizations, it's just kind of confirmation to the Vietnamese that they're part of the world's community again, and also the fact that the Americans are bringing, bringing money back and investment. And I, in four years and living in a I never was made once to feel uncomfortable because I represent the country that had tried to bomb them out of existence. That, that, that is remarkable. Well, let's look up, take a look back, especially for some of our younger listeners who were born after the Vietnam era. Right. There was massive bombing of the Ho Chi Minh Trail during the war. They used defoliants like Agent Orange, and yet you document in the article, not only did this not um, stop the infiltration of the South, the, the movements actually increased as the war went on. Perhaps some of your younger listeners uh, don't realize the significance of the Ho Chi Minh Trail or even know what it was, but it wasn't a single trail. It was 12,000 miles of interconnected pathways, roads, uh, jungle paths built over the years, starting in 1959, I believe it was. And this what this is what made North Vietnam's victory possible. This is what moved the men, the supplies, the ammunition south. And we bombed it relentlessly, and I believe we only were able to shut it down for two days during the, the entire course of the war. And it, this just reflects the perseverance of the North Vietnamese people, the patience, the willingness to endure and to suffer. Uh, no sooner would there be a B-52 strike on the trail than a legion of youth volunteers would be out there with shovels to, uh, to patch the road. And within a matter of hours, trucks or people on, on foot were moving again. When they first started on the trail, moving down it, uh, out of the north, into the south, I mean, it was all done on foot. This was a six-month schlep through the most horrible conditions uh, with everything that could kill you from not just the, the bombing and the artillery from the sea by the United States, but also uh, tigers, snakes, spiders, malaria, uh, pure exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it... The fact that they are turning it into a national highway down the western side of the country, it'll go from Hanoi uh, down to what was Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City, and on beyond in the Mekong Delta. And this seemed to me like a perfect metaphor for Vietnam's own journey from, from war to peace, from being a divided country into reconciliation and being one country. Well, in reading your article, one thing that really struck me, I'd heard a lot of the uh, tunnels and things that, that were in Vietnam, but I never heard of constructing bridges just below the surface of river water to avoid aerial detection. And I thought that really struck me as an example of how uh, in America we so often go for the high-tech in warfare, but sometimes low-tech solutions carry the day. Uh, that's true. And, and this was, a, at the beginning, this was a very low-tech road. Uh, you know, since it's on the tunnel, you mentioned the tunnels that were yeah, the, outside of Saigon, the Coochie Tunnels, and there are other areas where tourists now can go and visit tunnels. So that the uh, GIs, the Americans' uh, dogs, sniffer dogs, couldn't detect the tunnel. Uh, people that worked for the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese would take bars of soap 
out of out of the uh, Americans' uh, bathrooms and, and uh, uh, living quarters, and the people running the tunnels would just rub the soap over the entrance to the tunnel, so that when a, a American sniffer dog walked by, he'd just smell an American and he'd he'd keep on walking. And so there were so many ingenious uh, low tech things that they that they did like that, but it uh, it, it it saved the day for them. Well, it's yet another lesson from Vietnam that perhaps the military still maybe hasn't learned as it should. <laughs> uh, I won't go into that one, but it's, it's pretty obvious. We have a short memory, and uh, history, sadly enough, has not served us well. Well, you mentioned some rough territory that the trail, of course, naturally went through, winding through what was described as the jungle, but you've traveled on it now. Do you, do you see it as bringing tourism to the country's interior? I'm sure it will, and, and it goes down... Uh, what was a very isolated part of Vietnam, populated not uh, so much by the Viets, which are the main people, the people of Vietnamese, are. it's, it's a tribe called the Viet. There are also 54 minority tribes, mountain tribes, and, and this road goes through mostly where the Montagnards live, at least in the highlands, and which has traditionally been closed, very difficult to get to. Uh, and absolutely, this is going to open up for tourists. I've already seen uh, motorcycle tours being offered. The road now is complete from Hanoi down to Kontum in the central highlands, which is about, oh, probably about 700 miles. Uh, I traveled about 400 of it doing the articles in the March edition of Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, and it's, it's going to be another 10 years, I think, before it gets all the way down in the Delta. But it definitely will open up a, a part of the country uh, that has been, been closed to outsiders. Now, there are a lot of people that worry about that. Environmentalists say that it's going to make it too easy for Ill, illegal loggers to go in there and, and cut down farms and take out the logs. Others worry that the uh, life of the minority tribes is going to be disturbed. Others worry that it will lead to a spread of AIDS because there may well be truck stops uh, along the highway in which there will be prostitutes. And uh, so there are a lot of concerns about it. But uh, And others say that Vietnam just simply shouldn't have sent that much money. I think it's a couple of billion dollars, as I recall, wow. that that money would have done better building schools, health clinics, or fixing the existing east-north, uh, north-south road, Route 1, in the uh, other side of the country. But uh, I, I think in the long haul, I think it's a definite benefit for Vietnam. We're speaking with author David Lamb about his experiences in Vietnam in conjunction with his article in Smithsonian Magazine titled Revolutionary Road. Speaking with you, Mr. Lamb, I don't want to downplay the difficulties that Vietnam faced after that war. You note that for 15 years, Hanoi did treat the South a bit roughly. Absolutely. And uh, uh, it would be wrong to point Vietnam as a paradise or the government as one that has made huge mistakes, particularly after 95. And the North came in. And although there wasn't a bloodbath, as I said, the people have expected, but the North came in with a very vindictive attitude, and they made the, the they came in swaggering with the the arrogance of the victors, and the South paid a penalty. Uh, over 400,000 people were sent off to re-education camps, some of them to linger for up to 17 years. Two million people were moved into economic zones. 
people from the, the city that were teachers and, and uh, bureaucrats and the very people that could have helped put this divided, war-torn country back together again. They were moved into isolated economic zones and be told to be farmers. Wealth and property was confiscated. If you were a Southerner, uh, your your child probably didn't get into college. You may never have worked again. Many for for many years in in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, once Saigon, uh, all the bicycle pedicabs that you used to see on the street, almost all of them uh, doing the pedaling were former helicopter pilots who could never work again. Wow. So the, the government definitely has a lot to answer for, and I think they set back the development of Vietnam 30 years ago. If they had gotten off the bat, uh, out, out of the gate, on day one with, a, with an attitude of reconciliation and, and making peace with their, their defeated southern neighbors, that Vietnam today would be as economically prosperous as, let's say, Thailand is. Uh, but it is, uh, th- those days have passed, and, and there is reconciliation now. Today, nobody cares whether their next-door neighbor fought for the north or the south. Uh, the restrictions on being a Southerner, um, they're, they're dissipated. Uh, it truly is a united country now. Mind you, it's a communist country, and uh, its human rights record is short of, of international standards, but it's getting better. There is uh, freedom of religion as long as you don't mix politics or try to organize anything in the Church of the Pagoda. Uh, 10% of the population are Catholic, and the churches are full every Sunday. Uh, people can move throughout the country without any prior approval. They can get uh, visas to travel abroad. So uh, Vietnam is is improving and improving for the better. It's got a stock exchange, for heaven's sakes, a, wow. a communist country, a very active, prosperous stock exchange in Saigon. So, so much has changed in the country that I discovered it moving to in 1997 for four years for the Los Angeles Times simply isn't the same country I knew from 1968 to 1970 when I covered the war and really didn't get to know any Vietnamese, really didn't learn the Vietnamese history or culture. And uh, it was for me to go to Hanoi in 97, it wasn't like returning to a country that I had once known to rediscover it. It was like going to a country to discover a whole new country. It was very exciting, Simon. Wow. There's one thing I, did, I would like to just comment on in passing uh, uh, from you. Uh, that Vietnam was given a very hard time by the U.S. for years after the fall of Saigon, and yet it was their regime that set out to rein in that murderous Khmer Rouge communist government of Cambodia, which I thought was very, very interesting in the light of the fact that the U.S. and China were sort of both pussyfooting around, but the Vietnamese went in to change things. Absolutely. Uh, people forget that Vietnam fought two wars after the, what they call the American War. Uh, one was against Cambodia, and they went into Cambodia, and they stayed on as occupiers for 10 years. They certainly overstayed their welcome. Cambodia, which was a pal of China, was then invaded by China uh, to teach Vietnam a lesson, and uh, they they sent, I think the Chinese sent a couple of hundred thousand troops over their southern border. Vietnam knocked the dickens out of them. The Chinese lost about 20,000 dead, managed to invade only about 20 miles into Vietnam, and were pushed out after declaring victory, mind you, were pushed out after 17 days. 
the fogginess of international politics and diplomacy, but Vietnam went into Cambodia. The Vietnamese and the Cambodians have always disliked each other because southern Vietnam was once part of, of Cambodia. Pol Pot, the murderous dictator of, of uh, with, who headed the Khmer Rouge and was head of Cambodia in the uh, end of the 70s, the, the Cambodians, for sort of unknown reasons, kept uh, shelling Vietnamese cities and towns on the border. And eventually Vietnam said enough. They, they went in and helped overthrow Pol Pot. Now, the United States, I don't mean to be getting too deep here into politics, but the, the United States had basically supported Pol Pot. In fact, in fact we voted for seating the Khmer Rouge in the United Nations. Wow as a counterweight to China. All this gets really complicated, but we, we, we voted to see the, truly one of the, a, 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 a regime of Hitler-esque proportions. But Vietnam overstayed its welcome, as I said, and they ended up staying on as, as a nation, an occupying nation. And uh, it was a very sad, tragic moment for, for Cambodia for uh, not to be rid of Pol Pot, but the foreigners running you, uh, uh, and sad for Vietnam as well. I just want to mention that because I do remember praising the Vietnamese for going in with that horrible Pol Pot regime. And remember how startled people were to hear uh, somebody praising the Vietnamese communists for taking military action. But I thought, you know, it's the right thing to do in this case. I, I agree with you entirely, absolutely. And it's, it's too bad they just uh, couldn't have cut their stay short and known when to quit. But uh, absolutely, it was, they did a favor to the world to get rid of that monster. I feel the need, as we have you here, to just talk a little bit about some of your prior works, which I mentioned in the introduction. I, uh, I pulled out my copy of The Africans and found the South African currency that I'd stuffed inside of it for a bookmark while I was reading it over in Africa. The Rand. <laughs> yes, exactly. Is it, is it, I don't know if it's still the Rand in South Africa or not. I suspect it is. I, I, do, I don't know. But uh, you, when you wrote that book, South Africa was still under apartheid, but it too moved into the future without bloodshed, something that might be worth just looking back at that as well. Yeah, and if you remember what I said in, in the, the book, I said that uh, I couldn't conceive that in my lifetime the whites would end apartheid and, or that when apartheid did end that it could come without bloodshed. And that's when I called 110% wrong. And <laughs> thank goodness I did. What a, what a blessing. So just an extraordinary example of the whites being more realistic about what the future held if they didn't, if they didn't give up power. And the fact that uh, there was a guy called Nelson Mandela who could inspire and, and lead and uh, uh, be this world figure. And un unlike uh, Zimbabwe, I used to go to Zimbabwe when it was Rhodesia and run by Ian Smith, and it had a similar system of, of apartheid. I don't believe they used that name. That, of course, has come, turned into, it was a tremendously prosperous country, self-sufficient in food. The whites w ran many of the farms, and of course, Robert Mugabe just single-handedly has, has destroyed that country. It's got an a inflation rate now of 100,000% a yes. year. That's true. That's yes. a one with five zeros after it. He just, Mugabe, couldn't read out, reach out with a hand of reconciliation to the whites and, and many other reasons, and that country is a disaster, but I haven't been back in South Africa since uh, since it, it ended apartheid, and uh, I would love to do it because although they've got a lot of problems, it it shows how much uh, can be gained when two sides talk to two former enemies talk to each other. 
Well, I know one theme in the in the book, the Africans, was how often one government in Africa will sort of turn a blind eye to the the bad behavior of the others. But in this case, it seems that at least at the moment, some of the other South African governments are getting together to talk about what to do about Mugabe. Uh, they seem to awfully slowly and awfully hesitantly, but there there is a sense of shame to have this this type of leader in Africa, which has made a lot of steps towards democratization since I lived there. And uh, there is a sense of shame, and, and I hope that the, uh, the the collective body of Africa is going to come up with a collective decision to, uh, against Mugabe. We're speaking with author David Lamb about his book, Vietnam Now, A Reporter Returns, and some of his updates about what he's seen uh, since that book came out in, in 2002. Uh, Mr. Lamb, Vietnam has become an ever more popular destination for American tourists, and I would assume you're an enthusiastic supporter of going. Absolutely, because I uh, actually I've gone back several times since I left Vietnam in 2001. I've gone back, oh, I think seven times with various groups, large groups, uh, sometimes up to 100 people, and uh, not as a tour guide, but as what they call a resource to just be there to give uh, a couple of introductory lect- lectures about what Vietnam is like today, and then be- to be around with them for the week to, for dinners and cocktails to talk to them and to answer questions. And it is so much fun to, for me uh, to meet the group the first time, and they come in with these perceptions about Vietnam, and they're a little bit leery about going, and they're a little bit leery about being Americans, in in a country that we fought for so long. And to see them at the end of the trip, I, I have not seen one person that didn't say, wow, this country is really something. The Vietnamese are just wonderful, outgoing people. And oh my gosh, if we had known 40 or 50 years ago what we know about the people in the country that we know now, uh, their history and our history probably would have had a, a different course. Uh, and, and Vietnam is getting slowly, but they're getting there with a very good tourist infrastructure. There are excellent hotels now. The Vietnam's got its uh, a Hyatt uh, a Park Hyatt opened a year or so ago. It's got a wonderful hotel in Hanoi, built by the French in 1911, the Metropole, which has been completely renovated. And uh, there's just so much to do. And, and it, it's interesting also that Vietnam is one of one of the safest countries you could you could go to. There are, first of all, there are no guns in Vietnam. They're illegal, and the only guns wow. are in the hands of the authority and the uh, police and the soldiers. And it, for those who want to make an argument that restricting guns <laughs> don't affect the crime rate, they really ought to go to Vietnam for a while and hang out and see what see what the result is. And I remember wow. my wife saying, uh, I used to travel a lot when we lived in Hanoi because I was covering all of Southeast Asia, 11 countries. And so I was traveling a great deal. And Sandy used to say, you know, being able to walk down any street at any hour to uh, walk down my own street, getting out of a taxi at night, and to go into my house and, or our apartment and not have to look over my shoulder to, to make sure nobody's there that I should be worried about. She said that's a whole, it gives you a whole liberating feeling that you just, um, you're not used to, and it's just such a wonderful feeling of liberation not to ever have to worry. And uh, it, your chances as a foreigner or even as a Vietnamese, basically, but of, of being mugged or physically hurt or anything, the worst, the worst that I've ever heard of 
happening to anybody there, visiting Westerners, perhaps getting pickpocketed. And yeah. uh, so that, in this day and age, that's a wonderful thing. It's also a, a country where there's zero chance of terrorism. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam is very smart. They know who's coming in and who's going out. And Vietnam's got no enemies left in the world. They They have a foreign policy that is based on, quote, being friends with all countries, end quote. And although that may seem a little naive, uh, it works. And they, this is a country that really has no enemies in the world. Well, I know that you and your, and your wife, Sandy, did a PBS special a couple years back on Vietnam. Is that is that available? Uh, you know, it is. Um, and Sandy did three. She was, she was the, the genius and the creator and the the editor, the filmer, the producer, uh, the director behind it. There were there were three really wonderful shows. One of which, the Library of Congress has picked for uh, part of its permanent collection, which is quite unusual. And uh, somebody could find them uh, going on to Wind and Stars like up in the sky, windandstarsproductions.com, and they'll find a little thing that they can click on, and they're full of wonderful archival footage as well as they look at at post-war Vietnam. They're a great, a lot of uh, schools and colleges are using them as a teaching aid. They're extremely entertaining and well, informative. Well, I hope someone will go out and, and, and get those, and I certainly, I certainly again, want to plug your books, The Africans and the Arabs, as both things, things that people, people should have in their home library. Thank you very much, Doug. But uh, but final question, uh, I guess for you. Curiously, uh, you know, uh, we have a former Vietnam War POW running for president. Any any personal comments or comments you've heard from people in Vietnam about that? Yeah, in, in Vietnam, they're they're following uh, McCain very closely and the election. Uh, and you would think that they would want that they would be against someone that that bombed them. Uh, the fact is, they would love to see McCain become president. For one thing, that he knows the country. He's, he was back for many visits, and he was also one of the prime movers in Congress for reconciliation and reestablishing relationships with with the uh, with the United States. It's interesting that when. Those who go back to Vietnam and say that they are former soldiers that fought there, the Vietnamese are even more welcoming to them because their attitude is, we suffered, you suffered, you understand what the suffering is about. And when I went there, I was a little leery at first to say I was a journalist that had covered the war for a couple of years. And once I got over that, they they were full of questions for me and what my job was and who I met and how I covered the war and uh, were even more welcoming than if I had said uh, this is my first time in Vietnam. It's, it's really a, a sociological phenomena the way Americans are embraced in Vietnam and in this day and age when we as a nation have so many enemies or people who don't like us or at least don't like the government, uh, it's, it's for an American. This is really wonderfully refreshing. Well, I can tell you that this talk has moved Vietnam up my short list of places I need to get to in terms of foreign destinations. <laughs> <laughs> you, you won't regret it. Give it a try, Doug, and uh, I guarantee you it'll be time that'll be fun and informative and time well spent. I, I will do so. Our guest has been David Lamb for 34 years. He was a foreign correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. His recent article, Revolutionary Road, was in the March issue of Smithsonian Magazine, along with some photographs by Mark Leong. Thank you so much for speaking with us and hope that you can come uh, come talk to us again. Thanks, Doug. My pleasure. Give me a call anytime. All right.
All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.